Welcome to IOL Radio, the podcast for IO learning, a digital publication geared toward interventional oncologists and the news source for the Symposium on Clinical Interventional Oncology. Today's guest is interventional radiologist, Dr. Alan Alper Sog. Dr. Sog is here today to discuss his recent publication, Salvage Cryoablation for Local Recurrences of Thyroid Cancer Inseparable from the Trachea and Neurovascular Structures, which was recently published in the Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. Dr. Sog also discusses possible future treatment options for this type of thyroid cancer and offers tips for IRs who are interested in practice building in this domain. Welcome, Dr. Sog. Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Amy, thank you very much, and good morning. My name is Alan Alpersog. I am an interventional radiologist and interventional oncologist at Duke University Medical Center, and I am a member of the Duke Cancer Institute endocrine neoplasia team. I'm excited to talk to our IO Learning listeners today regarding where we are with thyroid cancer, as well as where we're headed for some of our toughest recurrent disease and salvage cases, cases that are adherent to the nerves and blood vessels in the neck. Great. Let's start with some background about interventional oncology treatment options for thyroid cancers. Where are we currently and where do you believe we're headed? Well, this is a very important question, uh, Amy, because are now at a crossroads where we have many technologies available to help provide less invasive treatments for cancer in general. And we are faced with an increasing detection rate of small uh, papillary thyroid cancers. And this is because of incidental detection at the time of ultrasound. And it's a hot topic right now. You know, thyroid RFA has already been on the market regarding benign thyroid nodules. But we're seeing more and more reports of radiofrequency ablation, microwave ablation within the thyroid for primary thyroid cancers that are small. Still, the ATA guidelines are recommending surgery as of the time of this recording uh, in this setting. Uh, What I'd like to talk about is for the patients who get that surgery and are in their survivorship and are developing local recurrences, they often go back to surgery. They often go back to a neck dissection where they are under general anesthesia and the surgeon is entering the neck, finding lymph nodes that have cancer in them and removing them. Uh, This is sometimes referred to as a berry picking surgery because it's similar to kind of finding the berries within the neck. But actually we can see all these targets under imaging and we can target them with our percutaneous thermal ablation techniques. One of the challenges that we identified here early in our program was what happens to the patients who've had multiple rounds of surgery and there's just so much scar that you cannot go back in? And what if the tumor is adherent to critical structures, jugular vein, carotid artery, trachea, near the vagus nerve? The vagus nerve is important because it contains fibers that allow you to create your voice. So we actually carefully approached these cases, treated them with cryoablation at our institution, and realized that what we're doing is very unique. So we went ahead and published that along with follow-up outcomes. And so that's, that's something at the time of this recording, 
you know, we're recording this just as that data has reached the articles in press section of JVIR. Hey, fantastic. Now that study is called Cryoablation Salvage for Thyroid Cancer Local Recurrences Inseparable from the Trachea and Neurovascular Structures. Could you tell us uh, a little bit more about the study background um, and perhaps go into the protocol and patient population? Absolutely. And in fact, I'll take a few steps back just to talk about um, some of the behind the scenes items that maybe a lot of our listeners uh, would be interested to hear that are not reflected in the paper. So when we started at Duke, we knew that we wanted to create a comprehensive thyroid IR service line. And this is kind of my passion is building new service lines and learning how we can collaborate and enable with different specialists. It's something that we've done very successfully in the musculoskeletal domain as well. And the reason I'm so interested in the thyroid is it's in some ways the forgotten organ. We, we've devoted a lot of time to the liver, which is very important, to the kidney, to the lung, to the musculoskeletal system. And as we're seeing uh, more and more to the breast, very important that we're devoting a lot of energy to breast cancer. But the thyroid has kind of fallen by the wayside, even though most of our listeners in the IR domain probably do thyroid FNAs very regularly. It's a very common procedure. We are interacting with these patients already. We are already doing most of the steps that it takes to perform interventions on the thyroid and in the neck. So it's a very natural extension of our skill set. And really early in our practice building, we wanted to make sure that we were identifying an unmet need. And the JVIR paper covers a major unmet need. Listeners in their local uh, practices are going to encounter these patients. The way that they're going to probably encounter these patients is at most places, the patients that were in this JVIR study uh, undergo serial follow-up with ultrasound. They basically watch these tumors grow very slowly. And these patients often have a long survivorship with well-differentiated thyroid cancer. And so you keep watching until they get to the point where they start causing problems, and then they'll often be removed. And causing problems means pressing on critical structures, or if they're in the central neck versus the lateral neck, different surgery groups will have different thresholds to go in. The central neck, a little harder for the surgeons to enter that space, especially after they've done a thyroidectomy, especially after there's a lot of scar tissue. And the lateral neck, easier for them to reach, easier for us to reach. The unmet need here is what happens to these patients who've had multiple surgeries and are unable to undergo further surgery. So that was the entire population in this JVIR article. We uh, collaborate with our endocrine surgeons and endocrinologists at Duke through a tumor board. So for people who are seeking to read this article and maybe extend this skill set to their own practice, I'd say the first step is to understand the, the local dynamics uh, of thyroid cancer care at your institution. At our institution, we have an endocrine neoplasia meeting that collects everyone together and we discuss these cases. We look at the imaging together. It's very important to note that 
this study occurred, we collected patients over a three-year period. And the reason for that is, there's two reasons mainly that are not mentioned in the paper. One of them is that this was the initial experience within our institution. You know, we were building a brand new service line and you're going to see a lot of patients who are not candidates for the treatment, or you're going to talk to patients and you're going to say, look, this has not, this has not really been done before. We know that this technology is used in other parts of the body to treat lymph nodes, but we have not necessarily had to do it when the lymph node is sitting on the carotid, on the jugular, next to the trachea. And not every patient's going to say yes to this. So it takes time to uh, accumulate that amount of, uh, of case volume. And then also we wanted to make sure that we followed these patients up before we published, because these patients have a long survivorship. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with a cancer that has a very short survivorship, it may be okay to publish a paper with shorter term outcomes, but we intend to continue following and publishing uh, longer term outcomes because that's very relevant for this population. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what, what the study showed and, and what the initial outcomes look like. The one more thing that I want to mention is the, uh, the study period included the pandemic, which was really a setback for all of the work that we do in many ways, because the focus shifted away from non-urgent procedures, especially when we're dealing with cases that are near the head and neck. A lot of things uh, during the uncertainty period of the pandemic, we really didn't know uh, what was safe and what wasn't safe and hospital resources were being devoted to the pandemic. So uh, that's that's part of the reason behind when you look at the materials and methods of this paper, why it spans such a long period of time. So what we've discussed so far is the unmet need, which is uh, interventional options for patients who've run out of options for local nodal recurrences of well-differentiated thyroid cancer. And a little bit about the uh, practice building that goes into that, as well as uh, kind of the real world patient recruitment that occurred for this procedure, uh, essentially in our early experience with it. Can you tell us a little bit about where interventional options stand in the ATA guidelines? That's, that's a great question. So the ATA guidelines, the American Thyroid Association guidelines, already include us. It's not very distinctly stated, but I did include the sections in the purpose of the abstract so that if someone only reads the abstract, at least they know where to look. So if if listeners are interested in, uh, in taking this knowledge and enabling it for their own patient care, those are the sections to look in the ATA guidelines. The reason that's important is this. Um, the ATA guidelines include alcohol as a method of tumor ablation, but there are two shortcomings with ethanol, actually three now, because there's the third one is that there have very recently been shortages of liquid ethanol in many centers. So that's, that's a hyper recent issue. I hope that resolves because ethanol is an important medicine. But um, the other two reasons that ethanol is not necessarily the best choice here, one, it's a solid tumor and you're trying to infiltrate it with a liquid that doesn't always happen as evenly as you would hope. And so you can get incomplete tumor ablation. Sometimes these patients have to come for repeated treatments 
at a center like Duke, where we treat patients within a one state radius, where patients are coming for care and then leaving, that's a really big expectation for them to keep coming back for treatment of this lymph node. Uh, the second issue is what happens when the ethanol leaks? You know, ethanol is a liquid, so you uh, you can exceed the capacity for the node to accept. And then if it refluxes, now you're dealing with ethanol potentially in a very dangerous space. So depending on where you are, the brachial plexus, so all the nerves going to the arm could be affected. With ethanol, you're typically going to get a Sunderland 3 a neurolysis. So you could have motor deficits of the arm, potentially. You could have a voice deficit if the ethanol somehow reaches the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Because as you recall, these patients don't have a thyroid. So the anatomy around the recurrent laryngeal nerve has shifted. And finally, the vagus, you know, if you melt the vagus nerve, you may affect the voice because those fibers, there are fibers within the vagus that are destined to become the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So the incomplete ablation and the risk of reflux and leakage of the ethanol mean that we need something that has better tumor control and fewer adverse events comparatively. Why did you choose cryoablation over radiofrequency ablation? The reason we chose cryo and not RFA. So there are a few uh, there are a few thoughts. We we chose cryo for a few reasons. One is my personal experience and comfort level with it. So I'm very very comfortable with cryo. Uh, I do cryo throughout the body. It was very interesting for us to be able to watch the ice ball grow under ultrasound. I have a great sense of what's going to happen to nerves after we freeze them because we intentionally do cryoneurolysis in order to provide pain relief, for example, for cancer patients with tumors causing pain in other parts of the body. And for these patients, I was able to say, look, you know, this is this tumor is close to this nerve, for example, the vagus, for example, nerves that affect um, the uh, the ability to lift your eyelid, nerves that affect the voice. And I was able to tell them that the recovery profile for these nerves is favorable. Generally, within about a three to six month period, we're going to start to see improvements. And we did have some adverse events in this uh, study. And the reason it's important that we talk about them is because uh, others who approach this patient population are going to have those events. So it's important that you see how they're handled, and we'll talk about how we handled them. And the reason these adverse events occur is because we don't pick where the tumors are located. They are sometimes located adjacent to nerves, and because of the amount of scar, you're not able to separate them. So there's there's a very common technique called hydrodissection where we place a blunt needle, we try to separate the tumor from an important structure to protect it. But what's unique about the JVIR study is all of these tumors were adherent. They were not, we were not able to move them. So we had to freeze them in place. If they're sitting on the carotid and the jugular and the trachea, we had to freeze them exactly where they were located. And in our paper, we included uh, all of the abutment that we encountered. And so the reason that we also chose cryo is when you're abutting the trachea, 
there is a possibility that with heat, you may cause the patient to have a coughing reflex. If you're having a coughing reflex while you have a needle in the neck, in proximity to the carotid artery and the jugular vein, that could become an issue. So that's why we felt safer approaching this with cryoablation. And uh, we felt that it would be less harmful for the adjacent structures for that reason. You mentioned adverse events in your recent JVIR study. Could you go into that a little further? So I think it's important that we realize for all these patients who had exhausted all other treatment options, we we definitely had the conversation with them about the potential adverse events. One of the interesting things is, whereas radiation therapy is an option in other parts of the body, in this part of the body in particular, it's actually not as commonly utilized for two reasons. One is that there is a risk of fistula formation with aerodigestive structures. And the other reason is that a lot of these patients are on tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which actually increase the risk of um, of those fistulae forming. So these patients in general, radiation was also not an option for them. When we talk about the adverse events, I think it's important to note, first of all, what adverse events did not occur. And the first one that I want to emphasize is that there were no infections that occurred. So even though we're adjacent to aerodigestive structures, the antibiotics that we're giving, uh, which are mentioned in JVIR, are sufficient to provide protection against infection in this case. And we, we chose those antibiotics with our surgeons based on antibiotics that they would give for similar surgeries. Now, we ablated directly on blood vessels. If you look at the table uh, in our paper, I'm pulling it up right now. This is table one. You can see every tumor abutted at least one vessel, the jugular vein, carotid artery, subclavian artery, multiple of those. And there were no vessel injuries. So this is very well tolerated adjacent to blood vessels, uh, as well as the trachea. So it's, it's important to note that probably the most probable or the most likely complication that we could have envisioned, which is infection or damage to adjacent structures, uh, was not seen for the blood vessels and for the aerodigestive tract. I will say several candidate patients were not offered this treatment because of proximity to the esophagus. The esophagus is not a structure that will tolerate cryoablation. And that's something that I would recommend that listeners avoid uh, when they're doing these treatments. Typically, those are going to be for central nodal recurrences. That area is not very easy to visualize, to hydrodissect or pneumodissect. And uh, unfortunately, right now, we don't have a great option for those patients, maybe histotripsy in the future. The complications that did occur were mainly related to nerves. And we wanted to make sure that we included our protocol for managing these but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the voice because for IRs who are operating in the thyroid space, the voice is really an important topic that needs to be discussed in detail with patients. And voice changes can occur when you have cryoablation with bystander injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve or the vagus. 
And in our case, we had two patients who developed vocal hoarseness and vocal quietness. And the reason that occurs is because when you have injury to those nerve fibers, the uh, vocal fold is not able to medialize. And so the patient's not able to create the voice as they normally would. The first thing that should be done if it was not done before the procedure is to give the steroid dose. The next thing to do is to reassess after the lidocaine wears off. So in some patients, if too much lidocaine is given, you can actually create some changes in the, uh, in the nerve function in that region. And so that may be your easiest solution as you wait for the lidocaine to wear off. Routinely for these cases, for that reason, I will avoid lidocaine with epi. I will avoid bupivacaine. I will avoid ropivacaine. If the, already the procedure is not very painful, the cryoablation procedure is not very painful. So by minimizing the amount of lidocaine and the duration of that local anesthetic, we're able to preserve our neural biofeedback during the procedure. And we're actively talking with all these patients during the procedure. And at the earliest sign of a voice issue, we stop. Now, we included this in the paper as well. These changes resolved completely at six months. And that is consistent with the recovery profile of a nerve after a Sunderland II cryoneurolysis. And this has actually been published by Dr. Prologo at Emory. And uh, it's important to note that it happens here. One thing that we also mentioned in the paper, but I want listeners to know is seek out procedures, seek out who is the laryngologist at your institution. Because if there is a vocal issue that occurs, the laryngologist is going to be the person who's going to help your patient first. And what they can do is they can take an endoscope, evaluate the vocal folds, see and confirm that there is paralysis or hypomotility and they can actually offer a treatment to bring the patient's voice back in the meanwhile. So they can do what's called vocal fold augmentation. And in this study, both of those patients had that procedure done. Basically, they put a needle into the vocal fold and they inject a substance that augments the vocal fold in the several months, uh, typically three to six months, which is just as much time as we need, really. And that allows medialization of the vocal fold. The reason this is important beyond the voice is actually because of aspiration risk and risk of pneumonia. So these patients are going to have decreased ability to protect their airway, and they're going to be coughing when they try to take large sips of fluids. And so having a laryngologist available uh, to consult them is super important. The other thing that the laryngologists can do is to prescribe vocal physical therapy. So even after they do a successful vocal fold augmentation, the patients are not going to be used to creating their voice with a single vocal fold. So for that reason, they're going to need vocal physical therapy to help rehabilitate the voice. So these are actual steps that we took for our patients who had this complication. And so it's valuable that I add to what is uh, available in the JVIR publication. And one more caveat I'll say about voice is so important to know whether your patient has one or two functional recurrent laryngeal nerves, because 
in this study, all the patients had complete thyroidectomies, often with radioactive iodine, which is standard of care to get radioactive iodine remnant ablation. And when the nerves are subjected to radiation, they may have a decreased ability to recover. So it's important that we consent for this. And, and it's also important that we know if a patient has had vocal cord medialization on one side, that surgery, that procedure that I mentioned earlier, it's not something that they can get on both sides. So if they only have one functional recurrent laryngeal nerve, we need to really be careful before we ablate in those settings. And so that's part of the discussion that occurs at our tumor board. And there were several patients who would have been perfect candidates for cryoablation, but the risks were too high. And so in those cases, we did not offer it. So in addition to the voice, which is a very important and probably the important topic. So if, if you are organizing a program devoted to thyroid interventions, the voice is probably the one of the most important topics to spend a lot of time talking about. But there are other nerves that live in the area, such as the stellate ganglion. And we don't have great ability to see these nerves, so we can't always protect them. We can estimate where they're located, but especially in patients who've had a lot of surgical changes, we may not be as accurate. If the stellate ganglion gets ablated, then patients will present with a Horner's syndrome. So in the case that occurred towards the end of the procedure, the patient was noted to have, you know, a red eye and a droopy eyelid. And that's important because that's something that we discussed before the procedure we get in our informed consent, but it also recovered completely at six months. So I think, you know, until we wait for a future ablation modality to be available in this location, it's important to note that we already have cryoablation available and that the recovery profile for patients in this series was favorable, even though they had uh, prior treatments to the area, which may have reduced nerve recovery. The last thing that I'll mention, which is in table three, is hypertension. So we found that when you are cryoablating a tumor that is directly on the carotid artery, you will get a likely sympathetic response that causes hypertension. The patient doesn't notice it, but you see it on the monitor. And that's very short-lived. It takes It lasts about 10 to 15 seconds. The blood pressure will get up to high numbers, something above 170 systolics normally, and uh, it'll be short-lived and it will come back down. We did not need to medicate any of our patients for this, and we described it just so that other operators are not surprised when they see it. You mentioned that many of these patients have already undergone surgical procedures. Do you see cryoablation as a first-line therapy at some point in the future for this type of cancer? So Amy, that's a great question because we don't have to wait until patients exhaust all of their options so that we can be in the salvage setting. I will say that uh, after a cryoablation, patients are still getting repeated follow-ups. We're still waiting for the, the nodes to decrease in size. And one of the benefits of surgery, apart from being currently the standard of care, is that you have immediately complete removal of that node. So it makes the follow-up ultrasounds a little bit easier. That said, it is a surgery. It's a small surgery, but it's still a surgery. And so 
it really comes down to uh, surgeon preference and uh, a multidisciplinary discussion. Our surgeons are excellent. You know, they have they have a very high threshold for saying that something is is truly exhausting surgical options. But at other institutions, the the threshold may change, and so people who are listening to this may find at their local institution that the surgeon may do, for example, at the index thyroidectomy, they may do a central node dissection. They may not do a, a lateral node dissection. And interestingly, there is variability across institutions regarding which patients need neck dissections. There's, a, there's actually a whole section in the ATA guidelines about it. And in the most recent iteration of the ATA guidelines, it became a little more lenient and the reason that that is important for IRs is for small primary thyroid cancers, routine lymph node dissection is no longer necessary according to the ATA guidelines. So that's great because one of the main limitations of applying our technologies within the thyroid for a person who has a thyroid is that we're not able to account for the node status. But if the node status no longer needs to be accounted for during open surgery, then actually us and the surgeons are providing the same standard of care for the central nodes. And so for that reason, I would say, so what I would say is for patients who have not yet exhausted surgery as an option, we can still offer our treatments. And I would say the JVIR article is a great example of that. I will say just from being very interested in this space, I have seen radiofrequency ablation also used in this space in proximity to critical structures. However, I will say that the in general, the reason that we chose cryo for this study and not RFA was specifically because we have a good idea of how nerves recover after ablation. And if a surgery is going to result in complete removal of the node and be standard of care, and avoid any bystander nerve injuries, it's still a better option than a cryo might be where you may have a nerve issue. So it always comes down to a, a discussion of each individual patient, oftentimes personally ultrasounding the patient in different neck positionings uh, in clinic before we you know, reach a consensus at our tumor board. Very interesting. Now, I know uh, another hot topic right now is kind of this upcoming histotripsy. Do you have any thoughts on that being a potential way to treat this type of tumor down the road as far as causing even less damage to adjacent structures than cryoablation might cause? I do. I think I think histotripsy is a I think this is a fantastic uh, application for histotripsy. And I am personally interested in how that would be applied here. I think that our experience has shown that while cryo is able to generate local tumor control with an acceptable side effect profile, with an acceptable adverse event profile, I believe that histotripsy is probably going to outperform cryoablation. I think that we, we will need studies to prove this, but what is promising to me about histotripsy is it's completely non-invasive in that there's no incision made. And I am hopeful and staying tuned regarding whether it creates uh, any uh, reversible issues with adjacent nerves, but there's no heat sink. So 
a lot of the challenges that we had to overcome for cryo will not be necessary uh, to overcome for histotripsy. So that's an area that I think we should all be staying tuned. Okay, great. Is there anything else that you would like to add or any final thoughts? I think the main takeaway from this is we found an unmet need of patients with tumors that had no residual treatment options and were able to apply cryo safely and have overall response rate of 100%. So everyone's tumors shrank with a mean shrinkage of about 88%. 40% of them didn't have complete shrinkage. And I think what listeners can look forward to from our group for future is what happens to the larger tumors in this series? You know, what happens to the patients who perhaps have been observed for a longer period of time and these tumors are larger? Do we need to come back for a second ablation? And uh, I think that that's, that's going to be our next topic that we we hope to communicate and convey. This is something that is available today for patients, but looking into the future, I think histotripsy is going to be an important technology to keep an eye on. I think this, for many reasons, this unmet need, uh, previously unmet need, now uh, is very applicable to the engineering specifications of histotripsy. And I personally am interested in how it will be applied in this space. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been so interesting. Amy, it's my pleasure. You know, it's such a privilege to be able to, to speak to you and to convey information through this platform. And I want to encourage listeners to reach out to me. I'm most reachable via Twitter. And especially for doctors who are interested in performing these kinds of procedures and are maybe interested in getting started, I'm very happy to be a resource. Dr. Sog's Twitter handle is at Alan Alper, MD. That's at A-L-A-N-A-L-P-E-R-M-D. And you'll find a link to his JVIR article on his podcast page at IO Learning. And that wraps up another episode of IOL Radio. To listen to more conversations with specialists at the forefront of interventional oncology, please visit the podcast page at iolearning.com.